Thanks, Natalie. You know, in December, many of us try and reflect on Christmas, the significance, the amazing, incredible, beautiful story of Emmanuel. Um, also, we reflect on the year previous. Do you do that at all, or do you wait till after Christmas, between Christmas and New Year, but then begin to reflect on the year past? I try and do that a little bit in the month of, of December. In fact, I've been reflecting on the last two years quite a bit, where we have had these, uh, not just the pandemic and the world um, responding to the pandemic, but I would say also the, the cultural uh, upheaval, the national upheaval that has so gripped our nation. Um, and then reflecting also just on how that upheaval and the pandemic has affected the greater church, especially the, ch the church around the world, absolutely, but the church in our nation as well. I was reading an author, and she used the word fragile. She said the, the, the church is in a fragile moment right now. Another author I, I was reading, they said that the, the, the church is at a crossroads right now. We're unsure of what the future holds. Um, uh, Christianity, Protestant and Catholicism has been in decline in the United States for, for many years. But Christianity around the world has actually been growing and, and thriving. But in the United States and Europe, it's been on decline. And they're saying that probably the pandemic will exaggerate that decline. Um, but not just the pandemic, but also the social upheaval. That the division and divisiveness we've seen in the nation and politics is also contributing to the decline of the church. It's hard to estimate the, the closures of church and the numbers of people, but they, there's estimates. The best estimates I've seen is that one in five churches in the United States will either not reopen from the pandemic or they've tried to reopen and will close their doors. One in five. That's significant. They've estimated the longer the pandemic persists and the longer this spirit of divisiveness persists in the nation, that one in five will be exaggerated, accelerated. I was reading one pastor saying, you know, it's really disheartening for leaders when... You have longtime members because the name George Floyd was mentioned from the pulpit, they leave. And in the same congregation or, or same uh, denomination, you have people that will leave because the name George Floyd wasn't mentioned from the pulpit. You have people that have left because um, churches chose to follow the civil authorities in terms of masks. And you have people that have left because the churches have chosen not to follow civil authorities. It's the rock and the hard place. 
it's hard on leaders. Many leaders discouraged with that place. You can almost do no right. So the statistics of pastors are, that are leaving are happening. So what do we do? How do we respond? What's the, what's the attitude or the mindset in which we bring to this fragile moment, to this divisive moment in our history as a church? I want to suggest, surprisingly, amazingly, I don't know for sure, but if Paul were preaching, he might preach the text that we're going to look at this morning. He might direct us to these incredible and amazing truths and invite us to recognize these incredible truths. And especially in this moment of divisiveness and fragility, live in response to this truth. Let's see if you agree with me once we look at these passages. We've been walking through the the book of Philippians, and um, we have seen that this, though Paul is writing from jail, this is known as the letter or the epistle of joy. He's sharing this uh, and inviting the Philippians, um, those, the Christians in Philippi, to share his joy, to be a people of joy regardless of circumstance. We saw last week really this, this love relationship between the Apostle Paul and Jesus, that he so loved Christ Jesus and, and the goal of his life was to be with Christ Jesus. He was saying, boy, the option of execution and death really is the better option for me. But then he says, I don't think that's going to happen because I I think the Lord is going to keep me around for a while for you all. So we see this, this joy, we see this love story, and then we get to chapter two. And we're just going to read the first 11 Verses. Would you either turn to scripture, you can follow it on there, or you can close your eyes and take in the words. This is Philippians 2, verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain Conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships 
with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Many would consider, and I would be among them, these verses of Scripture as the most beautiful and profound verses. That's really reflecting on it. You could call it, yes, during Christmas we read the birth narratives, yes, as we should, three wise men and all those kind of things. And yet this text in Philippians 2, this is the theological understanding of Christmas. This is the significance. This is what Paul does is he goes behind the story of Christmas. And he shares how significant and meaningful it is. And yet, in the midst of doing this, in the, yet, in the midst of sharing these incredible scriptures, he makes it so very practical. He doesn't just say, you know, would you reflect on these because these are awesome, that's incredible. He said, no, 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 I want you to reflect on these and change your life, change your mindset. He uses that word mindset or attitude. I want your attitude to reflect these truths that are happening in your day-to-day, everyday relationships with your, your spouse, your children, your, your parents, your co-worker, your enemies. I want these profound truths of Christmas to affect your attitude and your mindset. Not what's happening in the world. Not the political nature. Not the pandemic or the cultural upheaval. Would you focus in on these incredible truths and live your lives accordingly? So let's do that. Let's start with this, the, the incredible message of Christmas really that's taking place here. And, and really the heart, those, those verses 6 through 8 get at 
the essence, the, the, the centrality of the Christmas story. It explains Emmanuel, or what people have called as the incarnation. Let's, let's press in. It, there's a mystery here for sure. We're going to talk about this, this beautiful mystery, but I think we can press in this mystery and try and understand. And I want to start with this word here in verse 6. I'll read verse 6 again. Who being in very nature God. He uses that word nature. That Greek word is morphe. And the, what that word means in its essence is the essential form. Jesus was in essential form, God. The qualities that make God, specifically God, Jesus shared in those qualities. Paul then goes on in the rest of the verse to say, being in the very nature God or essential form God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. We'll talk about the grasp in just a moment. People have argued for centuries whether Paul really believed that that Jesus was divine and, and whether the early church really believed that Jesus was fully divine. And they've argued over these verses. To me, this passage is definitive. There's no other way I can understand when Paul is using words that mean essential form and equality. I can understand it in any other way, that if you think of some of the, the qualities that make God, God, he's saying there was an equality there. Jesus shared in those qualities. Think of the, the big qualities of God, like omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. If I understand Paul right, he's saying Jesus had those essential divine qualities. When I was in university and we were at a student leadership training camp in Michigan and uh, we uh, prepared for about uh, a week or so and then we went to Mackinac Island. Some of you have been to Mackinac Island, uh, but we didn't go as tourists. We went to share the gospel. So we went to pray for people, to serve people, to engage in people in discussion. And I had just graduated from college and there was a, a couple of the students had uh, met a Jehovah Witness. And he was, he was a guy that was, he was open, he was dialoguing, he was really wrestling, but they were really wrestling with the divinity of God. And one of my friends was like, Eric, do you know any scriptures about the divinity of Christ? And I was like, no, I don't know any scriptures. And they didn't know. And the staff were just letting us go in that. If I were to have that same circumstance today, this scripture would be one of the primary scriptures that I turn to. The Apostle Paul is sharing. I have in your outline some other scriptures 
that the Apostle Paul shares, which would be great to reflect this Advent season, to take some of those scriptures and read over them and reflect on them. In fact, if I were in that similar circumstance, I would also turn to the, to the author, the inspired author, John. Because I believe I, I've become convinced that he takes the gospel and he begins with a statement of Christ's divinity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yes, I've talked with Jehovah Witnesses that will argue that. But then you go to John 8, 58, where Jesus says, before Abraham, I am. And then John 20, 28 finishes with Thomas's confession, my Lord and my God. Then also John, who is the author of Revelation, the inspired author, I had a seminary professor that was sharing about the deity of Christ, and he had a friend who was Jehovah Witness, and wrestling with whether Jesus, actually I don't think he was Jehovah Witness, I think he was just not a Christian, uh, and yet when they looked at Revelation and saw Jesus at the center of the throne of God, surrounded by the heavenly host, his friend gave his life to Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, verse 7, the Apostle Paul goes on and he uses that same word for nature, Morphe, or essential form, but he uses it in a different way. He says, he, Jesus, made himself nothing. That word is emptied himself by taking on the very morphe, essential form, the nature of a servant. And then again, he explains that um, the first part of verse 7, by taking on the very nature of the servant being made in human likeness. The incarnation literally means to embody flesh or to take on flesh. And so if you understand Paul's argument and flow here, he's saying the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, let's throw in another word, the pre-existent, if he's equal to God, he was pre-existent. This person of Jesus has an equality with God, morphs embraces, takes on the essential qualities of humankind. You can understand why the early church councils wrestled with, well, was Jesus God? Was Jesus man? And the simple version was, yeah, Yes, incredible, amazing. 
he unpacks this idea. I want to share this one other word that I think is really neat in the Greek. It's kano'o, when it says nothing. Rather, he made himself nothing. That, that word literally means he emptied himself. It means to make void of no effect, of no reputation. How in the world did Jesus empty himself of the essential form where not really, there's a mystery there and embrace. I, I thought of this scripture that I think is helpful in understanding this. For Christ, this is from, again from Paul, using Kano'o in a different way. For Christ did not send me, Paul, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Kano'o. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I don't want to do it in my own wisdom and my own eloquence, all, what I bring, because then the gospel is still the gospel. It just lacks the, the power of heaven behind it. Yes? The passage, the gospel doesn't cease being the gospel. It just lacks the power. And I would say in the same way as theologians have wrestled with the, the, this mystery have, they've said Jesus didn't cease being God. We don't know how. But, but the, the privilege, the prestige, the power, he in some ways lets it go, sets it aside, doesn't tap into it. I, the language, we have to be careful with this. But in some way, Jesus empties himself. Kenosis. Theologically, I happen to believe that Jesus, Scripture's testimony is that Jesus never ceases being God. But he doesn't live from that divine place. He lives as a human with all of our fragility and weakness and yet filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we hold theologically in this time of Christmas the one who is in essential form God, equal with God, becomes in essential form fully and completely human. He humbles himself. He lets go. He, or as Paul says in another place, he who was rich became poor so that we might become rich. He comes down. The power, the authority, the, the fame the privilege he sets aside and God raises him up. Now, again, Paul says, would you reflect on the mystery of 
Christmas. Many people believe this was an early hymn, and Paul brings out this hymn. He says, would you reflect it? But don't just reflect on it. Don't just look at the lights of Christmas and go, oh, that was awesome. No. I'm inviting you to change. I'm inviting you to challenge your attitude. I'm inviting you to look at the mindset that you bring to the world. I'm challenging you based on this profound mystery. Would you bring this and make it very practical in the day to day? How do we do that? Let's back up. Look with me again to verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, what, what Paul is saying, this is all the good stuff of the Christian faith. If you're sharing in this good stuff of of union with Christ, of fellowship with the Spirit, if you've experienced His comfort, His tenderness, and His compassion, all the best things of the Christian faith, if you've experienced that, here's what you do. Make my joy complete. I love this. This is the epistle of joy, right? And he's saying you want to live into the joy, you want to bring a completeness, a wholeness of your joy, live into this. Being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and a one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, there it is, vain conceit, rather in humility. Look at your neighbor and say, in Humility. Look at your neighbor and say, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. No, don't say that, right? That's a phrase we use. Now, would you think about this again in the cultural strife? Would you look at our nation? Have you seen in the last two years selfish ambition? Vain conceit? A lack of humility. How many folks, how many leaders have you seen going downward in this trajectory of humility and entrusting God that they will be brought up? How many leaders? I want to suggest not many. I want to suggest that these verses are so for today. And of course, these verses are not only for today. They are for Christians. Paul is saying your attitude should have these words of humility, of love, of letting go, of service. Stop defining success. I think if Paul were here preaching, he'd say, stop defining success by climbing the corporate ladder, by increasing your influence and fame, by gaining more followers on Instagram and Facebook. 
gaining wealth, gaining cultural relevance, gaining political power, and moving up. Our founder and our Lord and Savior modeled the attitude that you should have. And what he did was let go of the power and authority by becoming nothing, and not just becoming nothing and a servant, but submitting to the cross, the worst of the worst. That's when we start to turn to an attitude of Easter. But he embraces humility fully and completely. Art, I've been thinking and praying about how do I embrace fully this mindset that Jesus is calling us to. And I came up with, with, with three things I'm just going to hit, and they begin with E. I don't think this has ever happened before that they begin with E. All right? But the first one, if you look at your bulletin, embrace humility. Let's understand humility a little bit for a moment. Humility is not a low self-esteem. Humility is not an insecurity or weakness. We, we see Jesus and Paul, and we don't see any of that low self-esteem or insecurity in them, do we? No. We see them as strong and authoritative, right? Were they humble? Absolutely, they were our model. So how do we understand this? Three, three uh, phrases or words. Um, Paul says this, Romans 12, 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Here's these three words. You might want to write them down in your bulletin. The first is, or the phrase is, poor in spirit. I don't think that you can be humble and walk in humility without embracing the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 3. Poor in spirit quickly is a recognition of our own spiritual poverty before God. It's a walking in who we are before God, recognizing authentically and being real our own shortcomings and sin. Foundational for humility. The second is this word, right, this word, beloved. I don't think you can have an accurate understanding of who you are unless you understand that you are beloved of God. And he loves you. And as was prayed this morning, nothing will separate us from the love of God. That is central to our identity as people. You are loved by God. You are beloved. And the third piece is this, sober judgment, as we read in Romans 12, 3. That we use, we, we don't have a false sense of humility, we don't have an insecurity, we don't have a pride, but we're, we're given this sense of we recognize our own gifts 
as well as our own deficiencies and blind spots. And before the Lord, with the faith that is given, we, we walk with that sober judgment of who we are. Poor in spirit, beloved and sober judgment, I believe that is how we embrace the mindset, the attitude of humility, which will lead to unity. Now, um, ourselves and others. I also believe step two is that we go with Christ, that we empty ourselves. I've mentioned this a couple of times of reading, uh, uh, listening to the podcast by Christianity Today, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll. And it's a, it's a really a sad story of, of a pastor who was considering kind of the, the top of the evangelical world. Church grew, super big church and all this and collapsed almost instantly and in trying to understand what happened. And really it was this, this growing, uh, I would say, insecurity and pride an untouchableness of a leader. One of the social media guys that was working close with Mark Driscoll and they were, he would have all these speak engagements. People asked him for his autograph and the, the social media guy was like, can you believe that? As a pastor, people want your, your autograph. And Mark Driscoll said, according to this social media leader, he's like, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm kind of a big deal. And the social media guy laughed. And there was a third, like he thought it was like a spoof of, you know, Ron Burgundy of the Anchorman. Like, I don't know if you know, but I'm a big deal. Yeah, and he laughed. But there was a third guy in the car and he's like, he's not joking. Now, if that was a friend... I'd be like, boy, he really needs Jesus. He really needs to understand the way of the cross. He really needs to understand the mindset and the attitude in which Paul is inviting us to live. But it wasn't a friend. It was one of the key evangelical leaders that we celebrated and lifted up. We've got to change our mindset. We've got to change our attitude. And we have to include this step two of emptying ourselves in the process. Paul says this in another place, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. Can we start with this premise that we are all pretty darn selfish at the end of the day? Would you agree? Yeah? I mean, at least we started there. Some of you saints have done some really good work in becoming less selfish, right? Yeah, so like David Henney has done some really good work in being less selfish. But I bet you there's some early stories that Marilyn has of selfishness. Yes, Marilyn? No? Or was he born that way? He just, yeah, what? 
But I would say, by and far, part of being human is we start selfish. We are selfish. We operate with a mindset of me and mine and give to me. And part of the journey is emptying ourselves of that sense of of self-focus, of priority of self, of my wants, of my arguments, of my truth. Yes? Now remember, embracing humility is poor in spirit, beloved, and sober judgment. I'd say we have to bring that, those three essential qualities to ourselves. And then if we're really going to be devoted to others, we have to bring those three qualities to others. We have to recognize that we're all sinners saved by grace. We are all poverty in spirit. I can't believe Scott did that. He's a Christian. He's a sinner too. He's on this journey of sanctification. We also have to bring beloved Mark Driscoll is beloved. He's loved by God. The persons that hurt you and hurt me are beloved. And and finally, sober judgment. What does it mean to be real and authentic with one another? I try my best when my kids ask for feedback. I don't just say, oh, that was awesome. I, I try and give them real feedback, like, yeah, this was good, this you could grow in. And they know that I'm doing my best to give a, a sober judgment. I asked Randy Hales if I could use him as an example. He, he, he's praying about this change in the ministry that God has from him, from the, the safety team to a ministry of prayer. And he said, Eric, the safety team is my strong suit. Prayer is not. That was bringing sober judgment to himself, right? So I said, all right, let's, let, let's look at how we grow in that. God's directing and guiding that. How do we bring that good awareness? And the third thing, which is perhaps the most practical, we emphasize others or we simply serve in humility. Mark 10, 45, Jesus is the example. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Some of you have heard me say, to serve is good for the soul. I want to amend that just a bit. Serving is good for our selfish souls. It helps us. I should have asked Kendra, I didn't ask her for this example, but it's a positive one, so I think she'll be okay. Our favorite time during the week is our date night on Friday night. 
And then Saturday morning, we like to, that's when we practice our Sabbath and read and rest. That's, that's my high point of the week. Just reading and quiet. Yeah. And I, Kendra said that's her high point. And she felt like the Lord was kind of bumping her and urging her to do, uh, to help women of grace. The only problem is it meets on Saturday morning. So she reluctantly, that's fair to say, said, okay, Lord. She gave up our special time. Every time she comes back, her soul is full with the love of those single moms. And that she's giving of that and probably in a funny way, is practicing Sabbath in a better way than if she would stay home with me, right? I, I'm not quite sure how that works out theologically, but it feels true. Her soul is restored by that service. Friends, would you think about the time that we're in And I've heard phrases like, the church needs to stand up. I agree. Let's stand up for Jesus and nothing else. No other political party, no other truth. We stand up for Christ Jesus. And by the way, to stand up for Christ Jesus means this. We don't go up. We go down. And not just in this fragile time. Not in just times when rough, but in all times. Christmas, the message of Jesus is not changing. The mystery of Christmas is not changing. We live our lives in the humility of Christ Jesus. It's got to begin somewhere, doesn't it? Let it begin with you. Let's pray. So Jesus, we just sit in awe and wonder, Lord, the wonder of Christmas the wonder of the manger, the wonder of a God of the universe being born into a manger, the wonder of the creator of heaven and earth needing his most basic needs cared for. The wonder of Almighty God being born in a fragile form of a baby. Lord, would you help us to carry this mystery into your hands? Help us to carry this mystery 
and live this mystery with everything we've got. Amen.